Nigel and just hand him over as he starts a part of our kind of two Sunday um, series that he'll tell about you in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, we just say again, just come Holy Spirit. I pray that you just come and anoint the words, the phrases, the passages that you have given Nigel just to share today. And God, we just pray, Lord, that it would just, yeah, just impact God. Lord, we come with hearts open and we say we want to meet you. We want to encounter you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, you just use everything that Nigel shares and communicates to speak deep into our hearts. Lord, ignite something in us, we pray today. Amen. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? Great. Is it too late to say Happy New Year? Okay, Happy New Year. Um, as Paul said, I was, uh, for various practical reasons, cutting it a bit fine this morning. Um, now I know why I don't come to church at 28 minutes past, or rather 32 minutes past 10. It's carnage out there with the car park, um, finding somewhere to park. Um, and yeah, apologies, Joe is not too well. Um, we've had the, I'm, how many of you have had the lurgy or some kind of bugs going around your, yeah, most people. That's, we're, we're not sort of particularly special in that regard. We've had it as well. Um, going around our family, um, and Joe's still just recovering from a bit of that, lacking a bit of energy. However, I am here, and we are together, and it's wonderful to see you. Um, New Year is a, often a reset moment, and we do feel as leaders as if God has been speaking to us about 2023, about the vision, about what God has for us as a church. We're not quite ready to talk about that in detail yet. Um, we're probably going to come to that at the start of February, but... We did just want to make particular, make a particular point of spending a couple of weeks just reflecting on where we have got to, and in actually an extraordinary season that we've just come through before Christmas. As a church, it feels like we are in a really precious time, a really precious season of drawing near to God, of welcoming his presence, and it feels to me as if God is on the move, and not just to me, but to many of us who pray and who try and lead uh, and have responsibility for leading the church. And so coming back, for Joe and I coming back to work after our sabbatical last summer, one of our key reflections, having sort of reflected back on the previous 10 years of leading here, was that as we go forward, we really, now this might sound a bit obvious to you, apologies if I'm a bit of a dim pastor, and it's taken me 10 years to work this out, but one of our key reflections was, we really need to hear God's voice clearly. And if we don't think we've heard him clearly, then we need to pause and press in and wait and listen. And if we do think we've heard him clearly, then we need to follow what he's saying, even if that might be uncomfortable or might cost us something. And that was the kind of key. There were many things that we learned and thought about and prayed about when we were in that time. But one of the key ones as we came back was we just need to hear the voice of God so that we can follow And the way to ensure that we do that and the way to ensure that we're in the best place to do that is by intentionally making time just to draw near to God through worship, through prayer, through fasting, through engaging with the word, his word, through doing his works. In short, by following the discipleship path that he's laid out for us and trying to walk as closely to him as possible. And so as a leadership team, we've deliberately tried to take a lead in that. We've tried to make some steps forward in that regard. We tried to um, start on a journey of fasting and praying um, intentionally, not a right lot, but in a focused way, 
and regularly and intentionally. And we invited others to come along on that journey. That's one of the reasons that, as Paul was just saying, we do this Come Holy Spirit event, because we want to invite many of us, as many of us as possible, to come to step into that place where we are before God. And it feels to me like all the way through the autumn term, and particularly in the run-up to Christmas, I don't, this is not a great phrase, but it describes what I think is happening. It feels to us anyway as if the spiritual temperature has gone up a notch or two in our church community. And so we had this fasting series in Advent and we pressed into God's presence and we were drawing closer by spending time worshipping and praying and, and, and increased expectations. And we've seen some wonderful fruit, even just in the month before Christmas, we saw some incredible breakthroughs. I told you the story about the carpet and how we got this new carpet, which I was talking to Charlie, our building manager on Friday, and he said, I'm already taking the carpet for granted and I need to stop doing that because it's only been down a few weeks, and wow, isn't it amazing? But more than that, I told you about a lottery grant that we had for about 10K towards our compassion. I didn't tell you about this, but just before the end of term, an anonymous and incredibly generous gift meant that we ended the, the year in the black instead of in the red. Amazing. And even this week, this week Stephen sent me a, a photo of two checks that came in for compassion, um, mounting up to about £5,000. I mean, the Lord is providing for what he needs to do. So some wonderful fruit. I should say, we've also seen some significant pushback, by which I mean spiritual attack and opposition. I'm not, this isn't what this talk is about today, um, but many of us have been ill one way or another. Okay, you could say that's just normal. But there are a number of people in our community who have been significantly ill. Um, our prayer chat has been buzzing over the Christmas period. And by the way, if you want to join our prayer chat and be informed of what we're praying about and how we're praying, you can do that just by sending, come chat to me afterwards or send a quick email to the office. Um, personally, for Joe and I, we experienced some pushback. Um, I wouldn't normally talk about this because I'm the last person to stand up here and complain about what's happening to us. Um, as well as the general sort of um, Christmassy illnesses we've had, um, uh, for me, the moment, the week that we started to fast and pray, I found myself in the hospital having my throat checked out for a possible thing, which ended up being glandular fever, which was a bit odd. Well, not what I was expecting. I thought it was a young people's disease. I immediately texted my wife to say, I'm very sorry, and I haven't kissed anybody. Um, anybody else, I mean. Um, I don't know how I've got this. So that was weird. I, I, I feel like I've been... This week now is the first time I've felt well in about five or six weeks. I've still got a bit of a cough, but, but you know, nothing compared to how it's been. Um, you know, as well as that, my laptop died in the middle of Christmas and needed to go away and be fixed. Our dog has a problem with his foot. Every time we came back to work, we became more aware of the gaps in our teams. Now, all of these things on their own are kind of normal things to go wrong. When they all happen together at the same time, I get a little suspicious about, what, about the timing. And I just think, gosh, this is pushback. And that actually, that's an encouragement because it means if you're not getting any pushback, it means you're not pushing forward. So it means that what God is doing here is significantly disturbing our enemy. This isn't meant to be a talk about spiritual warfare. I'm just kind of, this is my introduction, sorry. Um, but, you know, Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He said that. He promised it. But I've overcome the world, he said. And so sometimes all we've been able to do is just to stand. Put on the armor of God and stand. Some of you are dealing with very difficult 
situations, and it's very hard. And all we know how to do is just to say, come Holy Spirit, help me get through today. Because, and the context for that is that we know that God is in control. We know that God is in control. And so today and next week, we're running a, a mini-series. And I, I didn't get a fancy slide for it, but it's called Fire and Rain. And ironically, today is the fire morning, not the rain morning, uh, even though it's raining outside. And if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to 1 Kings and chapter 18. I don't have a, all of the, um, I don't have it on the screen. So you'll need to follow along if you've got the Bible on your phone or if you've got an actual paper Bible. Um, and the back, just a little bit of background to this before we get into this story, okay? Um, 1 and 2 Kings, the books of Kings, 1 and 2, take a, tell the long-term story of Israel's decline after the high point of Solomon's reign. You know, successive generations of kings of Israel tried hard to lead in a way that was kind of God-centered and following God, but many of them failed, compromised or failed. And so after generations and generations of this, God eventually lost, slightly lost patience with them and allowed them to be captured and taken into exile by their Babylonian neighbors. And it was only after finally returning from exile, it was only after finally returning from exile that they wrote their history down and tried to explain what had gone on and explain how such a nation that had been in such a great place had declined so much. And that's what the book of Kings is about, about explaining how it wasn't that God had failed his people, it's that his people had failed God. And that's the story that they were writing down. Although ultimately God didn't give up on them. And as we know, they eventually returned to the land. And so in the middle of that is this story of Elijah. And it's more commonly called Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But I wanted to change the name of this story because what I really want to call it is Elijah and the fire of God. And we sung this morning, Graham had no idea what I was going to talk about today. But just at the end of our worship time, he sang, Fire of God, fall down on us as we pray. And for me, there's no greater or better prayer that we can pray on the first Sunday back in the new year. Fire of God, fall on us as we pray. So specifically before we read the passage, um, there is this king, King Ahab. And just like his father, who was King Omri, he, and his, the, this is the phrase that one king uses, did evil in the sight of the Lord. He wasn't a great king. And actually what King Ahab did was to marry um, the daughter of a foreign king who was called Jezebel and thereby deliberately ally God's nation of Israel with the foreign nations. And what came along with that was with the Sumerian gods and specifically the god Baal. Okay, and so this god Baal, by the time that we get to this story, the worship of Baal has become integrated into the life of the people of God, and Baal has become an accepted God alongside Yahweh, the, the God of their people. And so what that looks like is there are all these pagan prophets and priests, and this kind of Baal worship has become a widespread practice among God's people. Now, Baal is a storm god, ironically a god of rain. And a God of fertility. The worship of Baal has been described as an orgiastic cult. I'm going to leave that to your imagination to think about what that might look like. How is it that God's people had got so easily into that? And how is it that they thought that that was okay alongside the worship of God? That's a big question. I mean, inappropriate is just the starting point. I wonder if one explanation could be 
that because their climate was so dependent on rain, they sort of just kind of went along with it to hedge their bets, thinking, well, we, we know that there's God, but look, there's this God of rain and fertility over here. And if we kind of you know, join in with the worship of this God too, then we'll just cover our bases. Make sure there's enough rain for the land. I mean, can you imagine how offensive that is to the God who had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, demonstrated his power through the plagues and the parting of the sea, the God who led them through 40 years in the desert, provided for all their needs at every stage, and then across, the, across River Jordan, got them across the river and into a fruitful country where they could live at one with each other and God and the land. This is the God you can trust. This is, he, this is your God. He only asks for one thing. He asks for your undivided devotion. And yet it seems that his people still figure that they can't even trust him for the rain that they need for their crops. And so they go and join in with these rituals to these other gods, Baal and Asherah and all of this. I mean, even the most patient of gods might have had enough by then, I wonder. And so this is where God decides he's going to do something about this. And he calls Elijah and he asks him to go and share a prophecy to King Ahab. He wants him to tell the king that God is not pleased and to show he means business, he's going to cut off the water supply. Now, I asked you to go to 18, but I'm just going to read one verse at the top of chapter 17, which is where this story starts. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. In other words, God tells Elijah to come to the king and say, I've had enough of this situation, and to prove it, I'm cutting off the water supply. There will be no more water until Elijah says. And then having delivered this devastating message, God then leads Elijah away, straight away into hiding. In fact, the end of that story, we're never going to get to today. That's what Paul's going to talk about next week. Okay? But at this point, having delivered this devastating message, God leads Elijah away into hiding. And he actually spends three years kind of hiding away from any kind of profile, any kind of public life. And um, chapter 17, which we're not going to read, describes how God looks after him, how he provides for his needs, how he brings him to a brook where ravens bring him food. And then once the drought kicks in, the brook dries up and he stays with a widow where the Lord again miraculously provides all their needs. And there's even amazing miracle of a resurrection as the widow's son dies and Elijah, by the power of God, brings him back to life. All of that three-year season is a really important part of Elijah's story. And we'll come back to it in a bit. And just one more piece of background. We also find out in the early part of chapter 18 that at some point along the way, Queen Jezebel, Ahab's wife, has gone and rounded up all the local prophets of God and wiped them all out, killed them all. I'm not getting into any discussion about violence in the Old Testament. I've done that before, and we haven't got time to go there, okay? But that's what's happened. And with all that in the background, we're going to pick up the story in 1 Kings 18. So this is verse 1, and then we're going to jump to verse 16 and read on. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah... Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So it's been three years of drought. So Elijah went and presented himself to Ahab. And then we jump down to verse 16, which is where this happens. Elijah meets up with Ahab, 
And when Ahab, this is verse 17, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you followed the Baals. Now, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. And let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Maybe he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. And Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes, descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and pray, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. There's no doubt that this is a dramatic story. And just to help us make sense of it and apply it to our lives, I just want to make three points. And the first one is this, that Elijah took a really bold step of faith. He basically met the king and called a showdown. And he challenged these people. You cannot serve two gods. Decide once and for all, who is really the God that you're going to serve? Just like Joshua, when they went into the promised land and God said, choose this day to whom you will serve. Just like Jesus in the book of Revelation. Hot 
cold but not lukewarm. <laughs> like Bob Dylan, for those of you who can remember. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Choose who you're going to serve. And that's still a challenge, actually, isn't it? It can be really easy to be lured into this sense that, well, we can just pick a mix. We can have what we want. We can have a bit of God and we can have a bit of something over here. We can, we're a product of our consumer choices. That's what our, that's what our culture tells us. And yet, we end up losing our edge, losing our vitality, becoming blinded or dulled. I mean, it says that, you know, when Elijah put this to the people, their response was what? Nothing. They just stared at him. I mean, they've lost sight of God. They've lost their spiritual edge. Maybe blinded, maybe dulled. And Elijah realizes he's going to have to do something more dramatic to get this point across. And I do wonder whether the altar and fire thing was spontaneous at that moment or whether he'd spent three years premeditating and planning it. Thinking, how am I going to show these people? What does God want to do? I I don't know the answer to that. Um, But I do know that such is his faith in God that when he goes ahead and proposes this honestly preposterous plan, I mean, what a crazy idea. Let's have a competition. See which God can light the fire. And on the surface of it, you would think that the odds were stacked against Elijah, right? Because there's all these people. I mean, there's 900 prophets of Baal and Asher and one Elijah. It's a bold and crazy plan. And I wonder what would have happened to Elijah if it hadn't have worked. I mean, you, guys, you could say, oh, well, he might have been a bit embarrassed. I kind of feel like he probably would have been lynched, actually. So he's kind of sticking in. I mean, I'm not, I can't tell you that for sure. I don't know enough about the culture. But I'm imagining that such was the febrile atmosphere that all of the prophets of God have already been wiped out, that for him to poke his head up and do this, and then if it all went wrong, I think he'd have been toast. <laughs> Literally, I didn't mean that like that. Um, this is Elijah's showdown moment. It's his moment of truth, his no going back moment. It's all or nothing, the ultimate test of faith. And how is it that Elijah is able to face that in such a calm and a peaceful way? Well, I think that his years in hiding have had something to do with this. And we talked about this before Christmas because we talked about this in relation to um, Elizabeth and Zechariah and also Mary. When God sort of gives a really key and dramatic word, often... What seems to happen is the person then goes and sits back. You know, similar thing happened with the Apostle Paul. A dramatic encounter with God, some sort of calling, and then some time away from the spotlight to kind of get to grips with that. And I think that as Elijah was in hiding, was living with that widow and her son, I think he's reflected on the situation and on the message that God's given him, and he knows that the atmosphere is tense and potentially dangerous. But I also think that In those moments, he's better understood the heart of God. I think Elijah knows that God really does want his people back. That he wants their undivided attention, that he wants to restore relationship with them, that he wants to give them another chance and demonstrate his power. And he's already seen God do that in a much less public setting. In other words, he's learned to trust in God. He's learned to walk in the ways. He's learned how to pray and how to worship and how to see God do amazing things in an atmosphere where there wasn't everybody watching on. And that's really important. It's in the, it's in the private times. Now, I wrote this down. What we learn in private 
helps us grow in faith and confidence that we then need to act in public. You with me? Do you get me? What God is doing in the secret place is leading to what God will do in the public place, for Elijah anyway. And I think there might be some parallels for us today. I wonder if for some of us, three years of going through the pandemic feels a bit like hiding. Feels a bit like being taken out of the main space. We had no option but to press into God. For those of us who were sat at home thinking, oh man, I can't even be with my friends. How does my faith work when I can't go to church on Sunday? We had that opportunity, that challenge to press into God. And maybe for some of us, this is our now moment. The things that we learned then get to be played out in public now. I mean, there's enough need around us, right? We all know people who are in need. We all know people who are struggling. Maybe this is our moment to step forward, just like Elijah did, with bold steps of faith. Maybe this is our moment to offer a word of encouragement, to pray for a friend, to offer some kindness, to share our resources, to call out injustice, to step up in faith, whatever that looks like for us. What would a step in faith in public boldly look like for you at this point? And I don't mean in public, public. I just mean in your context. Or maybe we're like the Israelites and we've just found ourselves losing our edge. Maybe we feel like we've lost sight of God. Maybe we feel like for whatever reason we have compromised and we're kind of trying to do our God life and we're trying to do other things, other dreams, other ideologies, other lifestyles, other relationships alongside. And that distraction has led us to be dulled like the Israelites were. And if that's you, if you really need to experience something of God, then today's a day that we would love to pray for you. If you honestly are asking the question, could God do this? I don't know if he could. We would love to pray for you. We would just love to pray for you today. My second point about Elijah, having taken this bold step of faith and set up this crazy competition, and then obviously he's some um, watched as the prophets of Baal have done their bit and nothing's happened. I don't really understand why he needed to taunt them. I wonder if it's just part of the pantomime or the person who's telling the story has added a bit of comedy. Oh, where is your God? He's not here. I don't understand that bit. But anyway, Elijah then has his moment. And the thing that Elijah does is Elijah worships and prays to God. It says that he rebuilt an altar that had been torn down. So what, I mean, we don't do worship with big stone altars and, 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 and animals. We don't do it that way these days. But the way they did it then, he reestablished something there. And that whole 12 stones thing is, is, is symbolic of the unity of the whole of Israel, which God has established. And he, he goes about the whole business and digs the trench and puts all the water on and everything. And um, this is what my Bible um, study Bible note says the whole area is now saturated with water so there's no possibility of natural combustion so if this offering is going to be consumed in fire it must be the Lord's doing so the first thing Elijah does is make sure that worship is happening properly and the next thing he does is pray he prays a bold public prayer he says answer me Lord so that these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again I find that the first thing that Elijah does is worship and pray. And whatever situation we find ourselves in, it's never a bad thing 
to first turn to worship and pray. It's never a bad thing to center ourselves and come close to God again, whatever that looks like for you. Whether things are going really well or really badly, it's just a really good default place to be, is before God. Our worship doesn't need to look like complex altar building, but it probably does need to cost us something. There's always sacrifice involved, one way or the other. And if nothing else, at the start of this year, I would urge us to make a decision to take some time and sacrifice a bit of energy, maybe even a bit of money, whatever it takes to put ourselves in a space where we can be with God. And you've done that this morning by coming to church, which is fantastic. But let's do it at home as well. Let's make sure that we're putting a little bit of time aside just to come be with God, to worship and to pray, to bring him the things of this day. Again, I think that Elijah's bold public prayer was prayed with authority and confidence because of the time that he'd spent praying privately. He's developed a relationship with his God where they're on really good terms. He knows him because of the hidden months and years. So that when it was time to go public, in front of all these people, he kind of knew that God was going to do something. I mean, you wouldn't take that step of faith if you didn't think that God could do it. And so that's what he did. He called down the fire of God. And the truth is that all of us are empowered to pray bold prayers. All of us, all of us come into the category of we're following Jesus where he said to his disciples, all authority has been given to me and I'm giving it to you. If you're in a situation where you need God to do something, you are empowered and you have the authority to pray a bold prayer. We all do. To ask God, come and show yourself. You might have listened to other people praying and thought, golly, I could never pray like that. But it all starts in the quiet place where no one's watching. We get the privilege of inviting God's Holy Spirit into every scenario, every situation we find ourselves in, whether it's at work, at home, at college, in the community. We heard Debbie's story a couple of weeks ago about walking along the beach and inviting the Holy Spirit to come and heal, and, and heal um, a lady with a bad back. What an incredible thing, where there's trouble, where there's sickness, where there's conflict, where there's economic hardships, whatever the situation, we are equipped with the power of God, and that's what Elijah does. And thirdly and finally, the fire of God falls. It says the fire of God fell and burned up the sacrifice, and the wood, and the stones, and the soil. I'm not sure that's even physically possible, but anyway, it seemed to be and the water. And again, my ESV note says, the fire of God consumes not only the burnt offering and the wood, but also the inflammable stones and the saturated dust, as well as the water that was in the trench. This cannot be the result of any natural phenomenon, since even lightning would not consume the stones. As all the people realize, this fire can only be a special work of God. Now, fire might conjure up images of danger to you, and it's certainly something to be careful around, but fire is more than danger. And in the Bible, fire is a metaphor for a number of things, but the most 
for the most part, fire in the Bible symbolizes the presence of God. The presence of God. And isn't that just what we want? You know, we read about God making a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, and he seals the deal with a fire. We read about him appearing to Moses in a burning bush. We read about him leading his people through the wilderness at night with a pillar of fire. And we read about him appearing to his disciples at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, with tongues of fire. When the Bible talks about fire, it's talking about the presence of God. The Holy Spirit. Also, the Bible talks about fire with refining qualities like silver and gold and precious metals. In the heat, impurities are burned up to make something that's pure and holy. There's a lot of symbolism there. So I read this summary, which I thought was really helpful. For the people, for biblical authors, fire portrayed God's power, holiness, and protection over his people. God's power, holiness, and protection. I don't know about you, but at the start of this year, I would love to have more of God's power and his holiness and his protection. And I only realized this week that I was going to preach on this passage. And it really made me smile. Because honestly, I've been thinking about this for ages. All I want is more of God. I want more of, all I want in my life is more of the power of God. All I want in our church is more of the power of God, fire of God. All I want in our city is more of the fire of God. And actually, all we need in this nation is more of the fire of God. By which, by which I mean that more than anything else, we need his power, his love, his peace, his healing, his encouragement, his truth, his grace, and everything else that comes along with the Holy Spirit. Everything that's available to us when we say the three words that we always say in our gatherings, come Holy Spirit. We don't just need it for ourselves or just for our church. We need it for our workplaces, for our communities, for our families, for our cities. If we're not on fire with the presence of God, if we don't have that edge, then what hope does anyone around us have? And so whatever happens this year, my prayer for 2023 is come Holy Spirit and set me on fire. I want you to burn me up with your glory and your love and your passion and your life. We've sung it this morning. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We've sung we want to be overcome by your presence. We've sung come fire of God. That's my prayer. If that's your prayer too, why don't you stand and why don't we just pray together and why don't we take some time to invite God's presence. Lord we've, um, Lord, we've read this story. Maybe some of us have read it many times. And it's a powerful image. We see you igniting this sacrifice and demonstrating your power. And we see people seeing that, witnessing that, and turning to you or turning back to you. And Lord, in so many ways... My prayer, our prayer, is that you would come and do the same here and now. In our lives and in our church. And so very simply, I want to say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fire of God.
come and fall on us, your people. We welcome you. We bless you. We expect you to come. We honor you. Come, Holy Spirit. We're just going to wait. There is no rush.